0: director's club with brad and al part of the sites and podcasts of the now playing network over at the director's club in each episode we take a look at the films of a single director their breakout films career touchstones personal labors of love and hidden gems found amongst their filmography you can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's body of work come join us on the film journey Hi folks, uh, I'm Al And I'm Brad And in this episode we're taking a look at the films of British Hyperkinetic Genre master Edgar Wright And joining us on this journey is Pete Richards from our uh, co-organizer of the Chicago Film Discussion Group Meetup And who was most recently heard on our Podcast talking on the first half of the
1: films of John Ford. Welcome Peter. Hey guys. Thanks for having me back We are glad to have you back. Yeah, I'll spare you my British accent on the uh, intro here (laughs) Hopefully
0: uh, those listening will be spared mine (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say that this is going to be I I think is gonna be pretty fascinating because especially in comparison with Ford because I feel that mr. Edgar Wright is a guy who has just that level of dedication of putting in all these details in every inch of the frame, as Ford does, but to
2: much, much different effect. Yeah, he's a classic overachiever in that (laughs) all he really needed to do was make a funny comedy, but he was not satisfied. So all of these films are not only infused with comedy, but with, with drama, with a lot of great... Uh, stylistic filmmaking. And uh, Peter, I know this was, he was uh, your suggestion and couldn't be happier to uh, be taking on his. And runs. what got you to make, make the suggestion?
1: Well, I, I think you said it, Brad. I mean, he Edgar Wright is a really rare bird to me because he's a visual stylist who focuses a lot on comedy. And I really can't think of anyone else doing that right now. He, the jokes are often communicated visually. It's not just people talking, which is very unique. And I think there's a lot of visual setup and payoff to his films that you just don't see anywhere else. And, Al, as you said, there's a ton of style, but it never overloads the characters. Mm -hmm. He lives in this sweet spot of his visual technique complementing story and characters, despite how stylized it is, which is a hell of a trick to pull off.
2: Yeah, and that's one so that's true. Most uh, American comedies don't even try. Um, exactly. His films have
0: so many details and gags packed into his films that provide an endlessly rewarding experience because you will keep finding them. <laughs> you, the more you watch an Edgar Wright film, even some of his early work, which we're going to get to in just a moment, you, you're going to miss... Some. Some because they're just so much packed into it, and some because you're just laughing too hard at the great jokes that he puts puts in. He's not just all about um, quantity, but quality as well.
1: Yeah, his movies are really what Blu-rays were invented for, I think. You can watch these time and time again. He's also very generous with the extras on the Blu-ray features, that there are multiple commentaries behind the scenes. Um, For someone who doesn't have a film background but just appreciates film, I feel like I've learned a lot from just everything that he goes into on his commentaries and behind-the-scenes features. And he's so energetic that you just can't help but be caught up with his energy while you're watching these things, and just get drawn in all the more.
0: Absolutely. His enthusiasm is infectious. And he has this wonderful approach to, uh, the when he references films and other uh, things in his own movies, uh, some of his um, special features include an... Homage o meter, where he literally says, "Well, this is how dedicated to this genre or this film that I was at this at this scene."
1: <laughs> yeah, and to that point, I think this is an interesting time on the calendar to talk about this movie because Ready Player One just came out, and Ready, in my view, Edgar Wright does the homage o meter so well and Ready Player One does it so wrong that they're interesting comparisons, Hmm. that he really incorporates these touchstones, these pop culture references in a smart way, and they blend in with the characters, whereas Ready Player One just smacks you over the head with these things and is really um, just really a chore to get through. Right,
2: because I hear all you're doing is basically looking for uh, references. Oh, there's somebody I recognize. And there's a character from a movie it's the, I've it's seen. The,
0: it's the cinematic version of. Uh, the uh, stand-up comic wearing the 80s shirt and skinny tie going, so folks, uh, Smurfs, huh? Smurfs, you've seen the Smurfs.
1: Yeah, essentially presented without comment, just expecting you to recognize them. Whereas Edgar Wright like, presents these things, and there's an honest sense of how much he loves what he's presenting and and commenting on it within with the characters and never just pushing your nostalgia button. Like, that does not happen despite all the references he works with. Right, he does
2: these genres, but he's not trapped in the genres. Exactly. And and I think um, the only other similar director I could think of in this regard is Mel Brooks, who uses Mm -hmm. the, the genre parody as a starting point and then goes in his own direction. And I'm impressed with Edgar Wright how he starts with parody, but then is willing to let the plot take it in strange
1: and different directions
0: Mm -hmm. satire and uh, spoofs but with a gigantic heart to very many of them
1: yeah and i think mel brooks is a great comparison i would also throw in zucker abram zucker especially his early films which we'll talk about in a little bit or at least his early full-length film are very much in the mel brooks zucker abram zucker mode
0: but he started off with a short film, or rather a film that got shortened that, uh, Peter, you managed to go and see.
1: Yeah, there is, as I mentioned, he's generous with the features on his on the Blu-rays, and he has a film on, on the Hot Fuzz Blu-ray called Dead Right, which he made when he was 18, and it's actually very similar to uh, the things you'll see in Hot Fuzz just done by an 18-year-old. So you see his, you see everything he's parroting, you see what he's going for, but it just doesn't I mean, you're looking at a a kid's film. It's more interesting as a curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's worth checking out if you're a fan. He actually does a commentary for it on the Blu-ray too. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, if you want to see like a starter version, hot fuzz done with no budget, that's what Dead Right is. Ah. But it gives you a real insight to... Where he's coming from, you really get to see his origins as a director with, with Dead mm-hmm. Right,
0: and then he ex- he expands on that with his first feature-length film, A Fistful of Fingers, in
1: 1995. Clap your hate.
2: Right, that's his low budget debut, which was a Western spoof following a cowboy's quest to avenge the death of his horse. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see this, but maybe you guys can tell me where does this fall on uh, the Western spoofometer between Blazing Saddles and the true story of Eskimo Nell? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now, Brad, I think you're being too hard on Blazing Saddles there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, you can't really expect everything to be Eskimo Nell. There
0: is more lovemaking going on than an Eskimo Nell, surprisingly so, in numerous ways in, in this film. <laughs> For me, I found uh, it is a phenomenally charming as a teen version of a Zucker Abrams Zucker treatment of a, of a Western. It doesn't quite do the, quite do the Mel Brooks kind of parodies to things, but very much about like gags are flying like a mile a minute and they're perfectly happy to break the fourth wall and then resume building the fourth wall in the very next scene. <laughs> um, there's a w- one particular wonderful sequence where um, our, our hero who, who is who ro- ro- rides his horse to the edge of a cliff. So sad because there's a big sign that says edge of cliff on <laughs> it. And by the way, these, these got everyone's riding a quote-unquote horse, which is one of those uh, costumes
2: where your legs are the legs of the horse, and the cowboy's legs are hanging off the sides. Oh, echoes of Monty Python and the Holy Grail's very, coconuts. yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's very much so. And so, uh, his, his him and his horse are then threatened by the bad guy. The bad guy points the gun at him, but the gun is empty. So, what he does is he pulls out a carrot and throws the carrot over, and causing the horse so to speak to leap off in what is the greatest example of a cheap ass horse dummy flying off the edge which nevertheless when it hits the ground explodes in a shower of bloody squibs <laughs> and then while the while the hero is wailing uh, the Shawshank redemption style no it, the camera slowly pans from a ed- sign saying edge of cliff to an equally archaic sign saying edge of frame and then it happily hur- 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 goes back <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it's basically like a gag delivery device, and you know he's twenty. It's made in nineteen ninety-five. He's twenty years old, so you're looking at what a twenty-year-old would think was funny in the Western yes. genre. And I would say, like maybe about half the gags, a little less land, at mm-hmm. least for me personally. So it, it's it's fun. It's never boring. It, mm-hmm. It's it's only like maybe seventy-five, eighty minutes, I believe, yes. and. It's more there as a curiosity or something you, if you're interested in him to check out like a fans-only type thing. Uh-huh. But it is... I mean, you could do worse. I mean, it, I laughed a fair amount. I'll I, say that.
0: I, I have a... I would say 70% to 80% of the gags land for me because okay. I... That's my. Well, that's one of my favorite kinds of comedy is just these wonderful uh, absurdisms and things that point out how ridiculous things are. Like, there's a wonderful police squad-level shootout where they're on... Uh, two different logs firing at each other and every time it cuts back that I'm firing at the hero uh, one time it cuts back there's a paint can another time there's a bottle and then there's finally there's little uh, shooting gallery ducks that are moving <laughs>
2: that, that get shot you know, the, um, way, the way you're describing this humor kind of reminds me of like a sketch review movie like Kentucky Fried Movie
0: Oh, it, it, doesn't, it isn't as random. It follows a, the uh, Sergio Leone style quite well. Okay. To a way that, Brad, I think you would really, really appreciate it because there's several direct quotes to Leone movies. Most notably, one from Once Upon a Time in the West where, once again, a menacing figure is shown in out of focus and he finally shows up in focus to his menace star hero when he was a little kid. And there you see a fort with a flag. It turns out the fort is a little sandcastle, and he's just a bully who kicks the sandcastle <laughs> over. And and so if you're a fan of the Spaghetti Westerns and, and the Zucker Abrams parodies, I think this is a fine entry. It's unfortunately only available, uh, we were only able to get it from the PAL format, the European format, but though that those formats are available viewing on the computers.
1: And you can, it will be coming out. I've, I've read, uh, so I've seen some tweets of his where he's talked about recording a commentary for it. I don't know when that's happening but it will be available in the, you know the general marketplace some at some point in the near future I mm-hmm. would think and like That'll I said it, great. it's 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 worth checking out I, I think you know you found a higher batting average on the gags than mm-hmm. I did But 50% is not bad No I like I said you can do worse when when it when it's demonstrating how many ideas he has yes and uh, half those ideas hit that's pretty good that's right
0: because like a zucker abram zucker joint the gags are in the hundreds and they even extend to the credits the ending credit sequence where you have the grip key grip then kung fu grip of course is gi joe <laughs> and it says filmed entirely in monument valley <laughs> and then uh, five minutes into the credits it goes okay no actually it was filmed in england but we got you <laughs> <laughs> So it, uh, very, very, very charming. From there, though, he um, Edgar Wright took a little bit of a detour to work in the world of TV. Uh, he did uh, skits and sketches for several shows, um, including one by a, a comedian named Maxie Sale, and had a whole series of like wonderful parody kind of commercials and other like sketches. One that I want to briefly bring up is is just wonderful. There's a series of like, uh, public health ads like. And it's about, like, for example, two cowboys are meeting in a, in a sun-deft field. And one of the cowboys, like, nods to the other one, then gives the other cowboy a package. The second cowboy nods, and then they ride off. And then it has a narrator say, never mind if you know the guy. Don't ever get a used condom. <laughs> and it worked, there, was many, there was a whole series of uh, comedic little public-held vignettes on this score.
1: So this is an interesting time for him because he he actually uh, he applies to film school and is rejected, and at that point enrolls in an art school, applies again to film school, is rejected again. Was this film school run by Marvel? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, But so from there he he's learning his craft in. TV basically. He does a lot of TV uh, in this area, all in Britain. So I don't, we don't have access to all of them here as far as I know. But there's a a series called Asylum, which I believe he created and directed. Um, I wasn't able to find anything on that. Uh, But he's in his early 20s at this point. Um, Like Al, you said he works in commercials, does a lot of basically short form. I guess you would say it's in learning the craft.
0: That's right. I want to quickly jump in and say another really fun thing he did that is now both on DVD and available on YouTube is a thing called Look Around Now. It's a dead-on example of video series that uh, kids... At the time would like see in classes little video demonstrations about science basic science concepts and it would show how does science work but it would be horrifically twisted <laughs> like there's one example of where they um about sulfur where they say the sulfur magnetic well first we put this in and and set the set the sulfur here on a tray then you take the tray and they throw that in a garbage can then they said, now we have a mag. They remove the magnet from the wrapper, and they angrily rip the wrapper and throw it in the garbage can. Then they say, now we'll move the magnet closer. They move it closer so it's touching the sulfur. Nothing happens. There we go, kids. Now, now we know sulfur is a magnetic. So now the scientist can take all the experiment materials. He then throws them all in the garbage and then pulls out a rifle and starts sh- shooting at it to make sure that experiment is dead, dead, dead. <laughs> so he, uh, these series these are delightful and highly recommended for how, uh, how they're dead on versions of these uh, programs, educational programs, but wonderfully demented.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And for someone who never lacks for a visual idea, I think this is a great way to hone one's craft, I would say, because I I haven't seen anything from this period that I would describe as boring. It's all very interesting. I'm hoping to at some point track down the Asylum series, because I'd really like to see if he created it, where was he at that point in terms of being a storyteller mm-hmm. because the next tv project he's known for and a series that i dearly dearly love is is spaced which yes. he he is a director on but doesn't do any writing uh, the writing is done by Simon Pag, who will work with quite a bit more in the future, and Jessica Stevenson. Um, ran for two seasons in Britain, uh, seven episodes each. And this is really where I think he comes into his own of everything I've seen. I mean, this I cannot recommend this series highly enough. It actually means a lot to me. And it's... Um, mm. It's just so great. It touches on all different genres, but it never lets the characters fall by the wayside.
2: Well, based on on your recommendation, I did uh, give a few episodes a look, and I, I loved it. <laughs> it was so funny. The concept is that these two unemployed uh, young people are looking for a flat, and uh, they've both recently uh, broken up with their boyfriend and girlfriend, So now they find, out of convenience, they have to they can move in together. But in order to do so, they have to pretend uh, for their landlady that they are a couple.
1: It is a sitcom and it has a sitcom-y setup, but like the characters are so smartly written. I, I really and one thing I wanted to start off from with with spaced is that it has a very well written female character. That was one thing I wanted to track as we go through the rest of his movies, because as I mentioned, it was co the series was co-written by Jessica Stevenson. Mm-hmm. And I wanna track like how um this is the last thing she's involved with uh, the writing on a Edgar Wright project. So I wanted to track well, how do we move with female characters from this point on? because this series really handles that dynamic and that relationship very well. They're co-equal leads, both their concerns are addressed They're, they both feel like real characters to me. and I think one of the beauties of the series is that you have that Steven Jessica Stevens and Simon Pegg just wrote so well for where they were in their lives they were in their early 20s it's about characters in their early 20s and you know it just feels authentic despite how many references there are how visually flashy it is which is something that i think holds true for egir right from here on out is it feels authentic despite how flashy it is
0: Mm, it does the british version of what clerks does in illuminating uh uh a group of people young people growing up who grew up in this world of where these pop culture references are flying uh all across on on tv and now the internet and they're just informed by it. It's it's how they can go and relate to this and the, uh, the to this and that aspect of their lives. It, it,
1: it's how they express themselves in a lot of ways. And what Wright does is bring those out visually, where like you'll know what the character is referring to, and then he'll provide a visual parody or touchstone for that. And to the extent I don't think you even really have to be familiar with what they're referencing because of how well the characters are written. You'll recognize the emotion. But when you have both those things working together, uh, you have, in my mind, a classic.
2: And there's one episode that is going to segue nicely into where he'll head next, in which the Simon Pegg character is playing a video game, but what he imagines is a zombie attack. And so the the episode starts out with him uh, shooting zombies, which uh, is quite a bit of foreshadowing.
0: Right, those ideas on, that Spaced uh, laid the groundwork for, uh, I feel, got brought up to wonderful fruition in the movie he made afterwards, called *Shaun of the Dead* in two thousand and four. follows Slacker Sean, played by Peg, as he deals with everyday problems like his girlfriend breaking up with him, his even more slackerish buddies freeloading, and wouldn't you know it, a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. Sorry, George Romero. This is the best zombie movie ever
2: made.
1: Well, <laughs> well the fact that this is a zombie movie, that, that's one thing I wanted to touch on with Edgar Wright. Because he works so often almost exclusively in genre. Given that I'm not a huge fan of the zombie genre, this is probably one of his films that I connected to a little bit less. Even though the character is very well written, and he's co-writing here with Simon Pegg. So this is the first project they have where he's a co-writer on. He'd written uh, the earlier films we talked about, Dead Right and Fistful of Fingers. As we mentioned, he wasn't a writer on Space. Here he is and again it's two guys in their mid 20s you know talking about life at that point and it feels very authentic but the genre trappings they use maybe it, it this is the first time i felt where i didn't really feel in space where if i'm not on board with the genre i'm a little bit distant from this film and i i try i've watched this probably 5 or 6 times thinking that the, I was missing something but I think the genre is a little bit distancing for me here
2: and, and I love the genre or more specifically George Romero's innovation in the genre mm-hmm. the uh two absolute classics Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and then a couple pretty good sequels yes. after that but since Dawn of the Dead is the starting point that they're parodying um I would uh amend uh Al your opinion and say this is the best zombie comedy. But you know, yeah. if if you're looking for the real thing, well, you know what, I'm gonna amend what I just said because Dawn of the Dead has so many comedic elements itself it is. that it's it also- can also be described as a as a zombie quality. But here's where what Romero does that that Wright uh catches on to, which is he uses the zombies as allegories, as uh, a pathway to make greater points. Mm-hmm. And the way Shaun of the Dead begins, you're clued in that it's a zombie movie because of the title. But it starts out, we're basically following these characters around and and their everyday problems, and there's some wonderful scenes where they're just kind of walking along the street, very self-involved with whatever, you know, their breakup and their family issues, and they're not really paying attention, and everyone else along the street is just as kind of casually walking by as if they were zombies until very subtly we see some actual zombies walking along the street and we don't know i mean we notice them but the characters don't notice yeah, them yeah it's it does this
0: beautifully i want to give the caveat that i am very much with you Brad and that i'm a i'm a huge fan of Ram, what romero did to with his version of the zombie monster and he deserves massive credit for creating that and especially in Dawn of the dead putting that to the whole satirical idea of zombies always wanting to get into a shopping mall for to take one, to take like one the example. The consumerism allegory. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. Why would I, but why do I put this above it? Well, part of it is that Wright takes that concept and he runs with it. He, ru- he runs with it on both a technical level by putting in detail after detail about how these guys are so oblivious to um, the the people shuffling and moaning next to them, (laughs) and also in how similar their behavior is to that of uh, the behavior of other people in this town are to zombies before any zombie things actually uh, arrive. And he also honors the emotional component. He ties it in as an allegory for these disaffected people with no sense of guidance or direction, (laughs) And, and works that angle wonderfully. First off, it's got that great interaction between Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as the ultimate layabout guy. (laughs) A guy whose literally only mission in life is to find the ultimate secret fart that will uh, (laughs) offend his buddy. (laughs) And they work that kind of disaffection and how these guys would deal with a zombie horde is just so, so great. Look, when they see a guy moaning on the street, but they're just coming back from a pub. So when the zombie goes, they both go right back at him <laughs> as if they just had a, a fun soccer match, for one example. And there is a wonderful moment in the middle where a, a zombie is very slowly approaching them in the backyard and they're looking for weapons. But what do they have? The weapons are a big crate of the LPs that their roommate had told them to throw out. So they're looking for what to throw at them and they're and while they're doing, they're rapidly deciding. No, do we want this one? No, 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 let's not. Oh, I want to keep this one. No, this is the early record. The early records are great. But Meanwhile, the zombies moving ever closer. <laughs> and oh my God, can you get a better example of people so tied into their own culture they're not really realizing the threat approaching? That it's so metaphorically beautiful in that, while being so hilarious.
2: Right. It, it's it's a great uh, scene for anyone not that fond of the batman soundtrack which is the, yeah, they are they are they are a little
1: harsh on the Batman. yeah actually
2: i'd also uh was a little miffed at dire straits having to be sacrificed but that's besides mm. the point that that scene well they were in dire straits though so <laughs> no no you're so right that scene really kind of sums up the attitude of this film yes we need to survive yes we need to kill these zombies but it's really not worth losing your
1: copy of Purple Rain over.
0: <laughs> well, exactly.
1: And, and what I like, too, is that the zombie apocalypse is, is like their coming adulthood, basically. Yep. You see all these characters, uh, uh, these background characters on the bus who just look, you know, are on their, their commute zombies, right? Where they're yep. just sort of dazed and out of it. And as someone who takes a bus to work occasionally, I am, that is me, many, many <laughs> days. And, like, you just, you know, you see that, they see that coming and their instinct is to run the other way and it's also tied in here with the main character's relationship where he's you know he's not really invested in it all he wants to do is go to the local pub um she wants him to kind of grow up and he to him that growing up is like this coming he's going to turn into a zombie if he does that Mm -hmm. and i this is where i think the movie like that's all set up perfectly and here's where i missed jessica stevenson even though she's in this movie not involved in the writing is that the the main romantic relationship feels a bit flat to me mm-hmm. because the female character is just sort of a straight woman yes like you know not interesting uh, not as interesting as simon Pegg's sean character is
0: she's the thankless role of the, exactly. the long suffering girlfriend who wishes that uh, the British Ralph Crampton will, like, get his act together.
1: Yeah, and and Jessica Stevenson has a cameo on this movie, which is nice. It's it's nice to see that, you know, the two main characters in space together again. But I kept thinking, oh, I wish he had been involved with in the writing with this or someone who could give the female character a bit more depth because the movie really is that's a big part of what the movie wants to say and it doesn't quite get there because the writing for the female character isn't there
2: you know even though i'm a big fan of edgar wright i do have to admit that this is a problem that i think is going to be consistent throughout all his films i don't think he really does know how to write romance might not even be particularly that interested in it but feels he needs to have them there yeah.
1: just cuz most films do and, and I, I think after this at least in the films he does with Peg is it, it seemed to me is that they almost stop trying to write female characters it gets for lack of a better word it gets more broy a little bit and I think that's just them being honest in what they're good at and playing to their strengths. I think in the other films he'll do with other writers or on his own, it does go back to a more relationship point. But in his next two films with Peg, I think they're more male-centered.
0: Definitely there's going to get some, a lot more bro-y aspects in in aspects in the future films. But on this one, we get to one point that I really can't emphasize enough. I want to tell you guys, like, listening, uh, boys and girls, gather around the fireplace.
1: (laughs) Oh, the Foley work here. Very nice.
0: There once was a time, long ago, in the mists of history, where filmed comedies were known to have a thing called a setup. (laughs) This was a point where you would put in an initial structure of a gag so that when later in the movie, you get the punchline, your uh, enjoyment of the humor would be enhanced because you're like, oh my gosh, that was something that was there before, and it was sitting in front of me. Like, just much like a good twist can really energize a movie, a good setup can really energize a comedy. But then the dreaded foe Judd Apatow entered the screen, and while Mr. Apatow has, does funny bits, He may be a funny person in real life, but for me, this guy for filmed comedy, he is toxic poison because he, him and his style of comedy have no setups whatsoever. They basically consist of people improvising for four hours and then he mashes the best best bits together like the mashed potato scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Into something that it somehow still manages to be a half hour too long. <laughs> and they're just scene by scene is pretty much independent of each other. Two people just jawing on an improv bit until something kind of vaguely pays off. And unfortunately, I think this just infects comedy today. And it's so cheap. And the best evidence and antidote to it is a film like the films of Edgar Wright, because he does the exact opposite. Every single thing you notice in Shaun of the Dead is something that is thought of and will pay off later. To give one example, uh, at his work at a copy at a copy store, he gets a little uh, ink spilled on his white shirt to which people say, oh, you have a little red on you. <laughs> that comes off, pays off wonderfully later. And, and there's a very central moment, where, which is so critical because how he set things up. These are guys that spend every day. They hang out and they go to the pub, and it's their favorite pub. They only go to one, at least in this movie, called the Winchester. They love the Winchester, and the movie makes it very clear about how much they adore the Winchester. So, when the zombies are threatening everyone, they have a great idea: let's go to the Winchester. <laughs> so, at that moment, not uh, at that moment, you're, putting, you're put in multiple places at once because not only is the Winchester the most logical place, but you still think, oh, for Christ's sakes, guys, <laughs> you're going to think of that no matter what. So this is another thing that Wright does, which he has things on multiple levels. Something is funny because it's absurd, funny because it's incongruous, and funny because it's ironically the best place to go, but then
2: one that it would have thought of anyway. So it's a perfect stop clock situation. For sure. And in addition to being funny, he also takes the zombie genre seriously to an extent so true as as the movie goes on and they get to the pub and we reach actual confrontation with zombies, it's made very clear, especially uh, when his stepfather, who he doesn't get along with, uh, turns into the, a zombie, and he's not sure if he should, uh, at what point he should kill him at. That's, that's
0: right. Which <laughs> also, I'm sorry, Brett. I just have to yeah. say, it also sets it up because he clearly doesn't like, it, or it feels that his... His stepfather doesn't like him, so that point, where did I kill this guy <laughs> that I really <laughs> never liked, <laughs> plays a, an effect.
2: Right, but when but then when the mass zombie attacks occur, they're played straight, and they and even though the characters are funny, they have to deal with a real threat.
1: Yes, and one thing I like about I mentioned how the romantic relationship didn't work for me in this film one thing that does work very well I think is the parental relationship right and one of the things that growing older means is losing your parents now I'm fortunate enough not to have had that happen to me yet but this movie does deal with him coming to terms with his failed relationship with his stepfather. The most emotional speech in this film is the one Bill Nighy playing his stepfather gives to him while he's dying in the backseat of his Jaguar. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, it really is like an emotional scene. And what's nice about it too is that the movie calls out Peg's character for being at least co-at-fault, if not more at-fault, for the state of his relationship with his stepfather. Yeah. And that is really you're learning by failing and essentially that's what this movie is in a lot of ways is like you're going through those same steps you know you're going back to the pub again but you're finding a new way out of it finally as you grow up yeah. and then the movie also touches on you know the pain of that when you lose your from fami- you know your parents and other family relations which you know here is done by a zombie attack right. but you know so you have this combination of kind of like pathos and humor which is done very very well
0: yes so so true
1: which brings up kind of the lost
2: opportunity you were talking about which is uh the romance with his girlfriend which you would think that as he learns through these uh, zombie allegories you might see different levels to how he can be a better boyfriend but it really doesn't go there so much as decide how he can be a better friend uh to his buddy played by nick frost exactly (laughs) For the first, and as far as I can tell,
0: the only instance of a zombie cave. <laughs> <laughs> I have to just add that I really like it when they finally return to the Winchester because that's where I think every part of like uh, Wright's arsenal of comedic stuff is brought to bear, and and all and his artistry as well. Because once they get there, you have you would alternate between a moment where he has a very uh, sad discussion with his mother as as she's was stricken, and then the boyfriend he gets pulled apart, full gore, perfectly deliverable effects of scene. You get the full intestine treatment, <laughs> so he delivers the zombie goods in that scene. And then right after, a zombie guy breaks in, and in one of my favorite moments, which is absolute comic delirium. They start attacking him with whatever bruises are handy, and then one of them accidentally hits the jukebox, and Queen's Don't Stop Me Now is playing, and they're all hitting him side, synchronized perfectly to the music, and the camera's circling around, while well, they're circling around another direction, I'm just like, Dude, how did you think this shit up? This will awesome.
2: This, this will be the first but not the last time that queen will be used to great effect in an Edgar Wright film.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, what I really like about it too is like you'll see a lot of stylistic filmmakers, but I don't think you'll see one as energetic as Edgar Wright. Mm-hmm. He just there's so much he's doing. There are crash zooms, whip pans, montages, and, and it's constantly um, when you listen to a lot of the commentaries, they talk about how difficult it is to make his films because of the sheer number of shots he needs. Yes. And they're all used as the thing. Mm-hmm. And they all when you're doing so much and it still all fits together, yes. it's really impressive. I mean, and, and you know, as we talked about earlier, you can watch these films time and again because there's just so much in there. And to have someone in command of this much style and to put it toward a well-told character study most of the, character stories most of the time. It, there's really no one else working this way. I have to say, yeah, that's that's
0: a very good point and and I also want to add that your insight in that the idea that the characters are going to learn by failing is really quite brilliant and it's something we should go and keep in mind as we look through his films from from here on out uh leading now to Hot Fuzz in 2007.
1: Police.
0: In the street. Oh yeah.
1: Scaring the nation with a guns and ammunition. Police at the ease in the street. Oh yeah. Fighting the nation with a
2: guns and ammunition.
1: Genesis.
2: Simon Pegg is Nick Angel. London's most tightly wound super cop, reassigned to the quaint village of Sandford, he's partnered with Nick Frost, local policeman who's seen one too many cop movies. Might this sleepy town be hiding some dark criminal secrets? I want to say the first in impression that I got
0: when I saw Hot Fuzz, I became a fan of Edgar Wright after Shaun of the Dead, but when I saw how wonderfully he alternated Peg's character from the complete slacker goofball in Sean to this badass cop, and it worked perfectly. I was shocked by both how effective it is and how the inspiration to have him play that guy in the first place.
2: Peg is brilliant, and I think this is Edgar Wright's funniest movie and quite possibly his best. I love it from the first to the last frame. In fact, the, the first scene, I'm already laughing out loud because, as you said, Simon Pegg is this stern, by-the-books cop, and he's got this uh, face on him that says that. And then he shows his ID, and it's the exact same face. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and it just sets the mood right away.
0: Yeah, even he even writes out the, fills out the paperwork in such an authoritative and dramatic manner.
1: And one of the things uh, in this movie is it mentioned, like, there's a lot of montage and Wright's work. And there are actually paperwork montages in this yes, movie right. where he'll cut together, like, these, just these scenes of people, like, shuffling papers, signing papers. Like, you know, that's a cliche, right, of uh, so much paperwork. Uh, police do so much paperwork. And here that's rendered visually, like, as a gag, which is really well done. Mm-hmm. Right. Just as an
2: aside, and I know the montages are, are done to parody cop movies, but <laughs> the movie I've seen recently that has those montages couldn't be more different. It was, uh, we talked about it on a previous uh, podcast, Darren Aronofsky's Requ- Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching these montages, I'm thinking... Did he get this from Requiem for a Dream? Right, right, because they're so excited.
0: They're so exciting. They're so over dramatic. They're so I, I, the music is just blaring at you as as file cabinets are slammed shut and pencils are st- Scratching furiously on the heights and weights.
1: <laughs> well, and Aronofsky is a good comparison because he, I mean, he's aimed in a different direction, right? He's not making comedies. There's not a whole lot of laughs in Requiem for a Dream.
2: To say the least, yeah.
1: But he is a maximalist filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of style there, too. He's probably the closest comparison for Wright visually, I think, these days.
2: Right. And this one also uh, takes on not just one genre, but two, because there's the obvious cop movie genre that is overtly stated in the film. But then there's kind of this mini-genre of mysterious small towns where bad things happen. They make a point that one character uh, was an extra in Straw Dogs. And then the the <laughs> right. presence of Edward Woodward recalls the Wicker Man. <laughs>
0: right, right.
1: Yeah, the Wicker Man's a strong... I, I had a mm-hmm. strong Wicker Man feeling in this film. Like, it's really... There's a scene like a kind of midnight seance meeting scene oh totally w- which was so perfectly done mm-hmm. you know? and we should mention too that off the success of Shaun of the Dead there's a lot there are a lot of talented actors now like I think a lot of times up to this point he's been working with friends or you know mm-hmm. other folks but this has Steve Coogan in a cameo uh, Martin Freeman in a cameo Jim Broadbent is in it Timothy Dalton has a, is particularly good in this film I think um, yeah so,
0: the town has a real impact on Dalton
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> So th- this is really the next level up after Shaun of the Dead. And it's exactly the step you want him to take, right? hmm Because well, he does all
0: the, the explo- all the explosions and all these big-time Tony Scott-level uh, blow-ups and gunfights and shootouts. They're delivered wonderfully on, on point.
1: And Tony Scott is mentioned time and time again to the in the commentary to this, where he talks about, like, well, usually only Tony Scott can get away with this. <laughs> you know, and just the fact that he knows... I, I really like the fact that he's working here again with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, but they all push themselves, I think, to do something a little different than they'd done before. You talked about Pegg playing polar opposite character to his Sean. Frost here is also playing, he's still a dim bulb, but in Shaun of the Dead, he's basically obnoxious. Like, that's how he gets laughed, is being being annoying to everybody. Here, he's kind of more of the lovable, dim bulb, friendly, dumbass kind of guy. And I think he really excels in that.
2: And he's the one who loves the cop movies. So he plays uh, Simon Pegg, a scene from uh, Point Break, where Keanu Reeves is just shooting into the air and screaming, (laughs) and then he gets to recreate that very moment in their own action scene.
1: Uh, And that is so good. And one of the things, you know, I mentioned that I think this marks the point where Pegg and Wright really don't. Uh, write female characters anymore. And they seem to compensate that for here by playing up the homoerotic undertones of the buddy cop movie. Which yeah. which which is done really well because like there's these this montage of kind of like relationshipy scenes between Frost and Peg. Yeah. You know, they fall asleep on the couch with their head on each other's shoulders yeah. and it's just really funny. Like and it, it really shows that A like they're they're playing into their strengths, but B they understand the genre so well that they're they're calling out the subtext in a really funny way. Well,
2: according to Simon Pegg, originally there was a love interest written into the script, and then they realized that it just repeated beats that were more appropriate for uh, Pegg and Nick Frost. Exactly, exactly. They knew what the they knew what the
0: import of the whole uh, action movie is uh, kind of all mm-hmm. about. And it does a really, really great trick because it does this uh, cross-genre where it is halfway through, it turns into this Wicker Man kind of hammer studio horror movie that's a parody of small town associations that want to bring in tourism Mm -hmm. and the wonderful homeowners association
2: way they keep pointing
0: up for the greater good, the greater good <laughs> it' <was> wonderfully delivered <laughs> and,
2: and a also a parody community theater in what, what I think is the funniest <laughs> scene of the film where they're watching a production of Romeo and Juliet done by these <laughs> this guy in his sixties and his thirties ish girlfriend mm-hmm. and but what's funny about it. Is they're doing Boz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> complete with the angel wings, and also, and, and also the cardigans doing Love Fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that's wonderful.
0: I, that's uh, that's right up there with the moment from Rushmore where they do the teen version of Serpico, <laughs> complete <laughs> with little subway. Just like, oh my God, <laughs> you're really gonna use that,
1: huh? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it has that. Wes Anderson feel to it right there I mean but it's done so well that, mm-hmm. I mean you laugh out loud See, it's hard to convey like how out of place the guy playing Romeo
2: is <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but,
1: but he's just so fucking wrong for the role and it just oh my god you just laugh seeing him in the yeah. in, in it, playing it is it. the
2: second greatest theater reaction scene behind Mel Brooks' produ- the producers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh so true and there's it can be really wonderful when you see a
0: movie that is one kind of movie and then you find oh my god no it's a completely totally different kind of movie i'm i have to admit or slash confess i'm a sucker towards uh from dusk till dawn you look at what's in the first part of dusk till dawn you're like and you're the end of dusk till dawn how the hell did we get here but whereas from dusk till dawn it's a clean break you just whoa suddenly it's this movie (laughs) and it's seamless but it just happens at a moment but this movie hot fuzz is such a great job of cross-hatching things to just it honors the cop movie situation it honors the hammer the secret cultists in a small town thing Mm -hmm. such that when uh, Nick Angel gets back to action. You get this wonderful, weird discrepancy of of uh, small townies like pulling out the rifles for a guy with a massive machine gun arsenal, and it works. It, it works
2: like it, well, a charm. It's also brilliant at the fish out of water plot so because yeah. you know we've described Simon Pegg's character, and these small town people don't know what to do with this by the books cop. They're just like. What do you? there's no murders in this town, just a <laughs> lot of accidents. <laughs> right, I seem to remember there was a kid who was like kicking a soccer ball around and
0: and Nick Angel busts him right down completing to have like a usual suspect's lineup of the kid suddenly holding his soccer ball.
1: <laughs> uh, I love that early scene when he first comes to the small town and he, he basically busts every patron in the bar. Right, for
0: right. <laughs> They're all underage. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's just so well done. And... Peg is just so he plays it so straight here and so stern. He's a strong actor. Like it's no, there's no accident that he's gone on to have a career outside of these films mm-hmm. and many, you know, many different franchises at this point.
0: You look at his performance. Not one microsecond of a wink to go. Hey, look at what I'm doing. No, he has complete and total dedication to this character, and his over dedication to his job <laughs> just leads to so many rewards. Like, like he won't. uh he won't go through a door on a, on the other side of a fence. If he can just go through the fence.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, the fence gag is recurring in all the movies or all the movies he does. They do together, and I, I love that. And the other thing, like about this movie too, is that he hits the comedic beats really well, as you said. But this movie, in many ways, is the is logical progression for someone who, at the end of Shaun of the Dead, stepped into adulthood. Right now, his main problem as he states it is that he can't turn off that basically like as you get older your anxiety increases about what you have to the the levels of employment you have to maintain basically you have things to lose now right like he's lost his girlfriend played by an uncredited kate planchette and a very very funny visual scene uh, early on but he's so tightly wound and anxious that when he actually does loosen up by the end of the movie, you feel it. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice character step from someone who was incapable of taking things seriously in Shaun of the Dead yep. to someone who can't relax now. It's like, okay, now that you've taken that next step into adulthood, how do you find the right balance for yourself?
2: You know, that, that's so interesting because uh, what you're saying makes me think about how each of the uh, three films... In what ended up being known as the Coronetto trilogy, based on the ice cream that appears uh, in each film, all covers kind of a, a different a stage in life. So, you know, Sean, if Sean of the Dead is about the problems people might face in their 20s. Hot Fuzz is about the problems people will face in their 30s, and then we'll end up talking about a film that deals with more about what people will face in their 40s.
1: Yeah, these are restless actors and restless filmmakers. They're not just sitting on their laurels. They're moving forward. They have a style that they stick with, but they push themselves within that style frequently. And that's why none of this ever gets old. Like, it feels like, and I think for a certain extent, I mean, like I'm in my early 40s and I'm basically the same age as Edgar Wright. So I think it's more or less tracked my life, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe I I connect with it a bit more from there. But I think all that, you know, that honest emotional, honest consideration of where you are in life and your emotions at that stage are really in these movies. It's just that they're melded with genre tropes that work really well, but there's mm-hmm. no shortage of honest emotion in these exactly. films.
0: Exactly. Uh, that's I'm mean, And that's... What makes both *Shaun of the Dead*, *Hot Fuzz*, and uh, *Space* so wonderful? They engage on many, many levels, and you can appreciate them in many, many ways. You get the emotional part out of that. You want the just ridiculous comedy? You get that and. A hell of a lot of stuff in between.
1: Yeah, a perfect example for me in Hot Fuzz is like they use this line from bad boys to shit <laughs> shit just got real. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a corny line, but in many ways it's talking about their lives too. Yeah. Shit is getting real for these guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just that that is so smart to have something that funny also be that meaningful is uh just just perfect. Well, at one
2: point in the film, Peter, shit got even realer than I expected when they have a line that uh, predicted the future, where one of the villains says they want to make Sanford great again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no.
1: <laughs> and, and we should mention to you that the council, the villainous council, is, is called the NWA. <laughs> and there was no realer shit than NWA. We all know that. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> For- Wow. I- exactly, but maybe we're gonna end up getting a little less real with Wright's next film. Yeah, his next film is Scott Pilgrim vs.
0: the world, released in 2010. We are Sex Babom and we're here to
2: make you think about death and get sad and stuff. <laughs>
0: In a world obsessed with video games and battles of bands, Michael Sarah, played by Jesse Eisenberg, is looking for love and thinks he's found it with Ramona Flowers. She seems like the perfect girl for him until he finds out he'll have to battle her seven evil exes, or it's
2: game over, man. <laughs> yeah, here's where Wright loses me uh, a bit. Right goes, goes wrong. Right goes wrong. One of the the first issues is is not that it's so stylistic, but how it's stylistic. They try to recreate all these video game, comic book, uh, pop culture things with crazed visual flourishes that end up for me looking like a cross between. Uh, Wes Anderson at his most impish, <laughs> and the old Batman TV series. Yes. Because they, they do, they have uh, variations of Pow and Bam written on the screen as as people are are doing stuff. And we talked about how good he was with pacing in his earlier films, but he's so hyper with his pacing here that neither the story or the flourishes really keep up with it so it, it it seems like more of a random assault than the well thought out reveals that he generally gives us
1: i'm not too far off from you guys in where i end up on this film but i think we're getting going different routes to get there mm. i don't feel like he he never loses command of his visual touch in this film like i think he's we should say this is an adaptation of a graphic novel so its source is a comic book basically by another name and he's bringing those visuals to the screen the problem i have with it is that despite how much how many visuals there are there's no story to match that it's you mentioned that basically he has to defeat in a comic book sense seven evil X's in order to uh get the girl basically when you have to go through the same process seven times, you're basically just repeating yourself. I mean, by nature of the story, you don't have anywhere to go. And when he throws all his visual ideas into that pattern for maybe the first three evil exes, I think it's great. The first half of this film is brilliant, maybe one of the best things he's done. The problem is is that there's another hour left after that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that it will go through a lot of the same paces. And we should mention that this is his first PG-13 film. It feels a little bit like he's being restrained. It's his first kind of Hollywood film that it just doesn't... It feels like he's trying to fit into a box that he doesn't quite fit in. I think if this film were rated R and 90 minutes long, and maybe there were three evil exes he had to defeat who were a little bit deeper in character, that, to me, is a great film. This is an okay one.
2: You you, you really hit on... A main problem here uh, with the repetition because when you first hear the phrase seven evil exes it's cute it's kind of funny it's like oh well that's just a uh, bit of a skewed way to look at these relationships but then mm. as it's repeated over and over again it becomes okay i i get it now and and it even steps on its own lines a bit because She keeps saying when he says ex-girlfriends, no exes, because one of the exes is a girl. But for some reason, they have her show up earlier in the film before she's formally introduced. So they step on their own joke. It should be noted that the film and maybe the graphic
0: novel also kind of is a little bit aware of that in that two of the evil exes are just they dealt with at once by the end they're going mm-hmm. okay man maybe we maybe we
1: bill off a little more than we can chew you know well it, it, you know one thing too it, we, we've talked a lot a bit of, a lot about the dynamic visual style he has even in a film like this a lot of it is still in camera Like, which is really amazing. Like, he does a very good job of grounding his films as flash as they are in reality. And one nice touch here that we'll see repeated later as well is that this film is set in Toronto and it's actually shot in Toronto, which how many times do you does Toronto stand in for another city, yeah. right? Yeah. You very rarely see a movie set in Toronto shot in Toronto. It's always New York or Toronto doubling for New York or yeah. or wherever. It feels authentic to me in 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 that sense, as stylized as it is. And another, it, I also really love the relationship between Scott Pilgrim and his roommate. Like, they spend a lot of time in this basement apartment, and the way this like dingy, dull location is shot. Really is really done very well. It's not that flashy, but you get a sense of the two of them living there. And to me, like, there's enough character grounding there that this movie had potential to explore. Instead, it just goes through repetitive fight scenes.
0: The strongest character in the movie is his roommate, Uh, maybe the greatest Culkin performance. This guy does a great job as being the voice of reason in a film that very much so often has reason fly out the window along with mr pilgrim himself (laughs) um i also want to add to your point peter that they do a real good job of enhancing the space which is basically like one room i don't even think you even see the bathroom and using it to a very great effect in many many scenes to make it uh, and still keeping it um visually interesting
1: exactly it's It's about as dull a location as you can get. It's a basement apartment with very little light. Um, But yet, I looked forward to the scenes there because of the relationship he establishes and the visuals, um, the visual style, which which isn't out of touch with the location, but yet makes it interesting.
2: Maybe you also look forward to it because it's one of the few scenes that don't have insane visuals coming at you Mm -hmm. and in weird laser animation things that just are constantly uh appearing on screen in these stylistic flourishes that you know you look forward to maybe there being a couple scenes
1: that are just characters talking to each other well Mm -hmm. you do you can't like you can't go max all the time right mm-hmm. like max effort all the time is is too much like you're just going to so you do need these relatively quiet moments to get the dynamics you need right when you when you're down to go up yeah I, and and i think that where i again I, I don't feel like there's ever too much style it just doesn't have anywhere to go I just wish, to me, I, I guess I just wish the characters were deeper. Like he's dealing here again with people in their early twenties. So this is the first time he's not making a film that Matt uh, that's dealing with a character that's his own age, basically. And there's a, you know, there are millions of relationships movies about people in their early twenties. And we talked about characters learning by failing um, in Hot Fuzz or and In Shaun of the Dead here like that would seem to be a very obvious place to go where mm-hmm. you have all the you know, failed relationships. And you can, if you don't have seven of them, if you have three of them, you can talk about at a deeper level, why did they go wrong? And that could be done very well. It's just that yes. the movie's not interested and in that.
0: In fact, they, I would argue that they were really done very well in a totally different film called High Fidelity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of the reason that they're better in that is because the main character goes through these breakups in a different way, and it's not a second person, a kind of a wish-fulfillment fantasy girl complete with magic-changing mood hair um, who's going through them, but the main character is going through them. And it also uh, helps that there is it is a... Character and a person playing him who is even remotely believable as somebody who's been going through multiple relationships and has been playing women off out of each other and been involved in all these breakups. Well, well I'm sorry, Michael Sarah is one of the most. This is the the biggest problem of this movie is that Michael Sarah is one of the most ridiculously miscast characters in film history. He's not quite Genghis Khan played by John Wayne level of The Conqueror. (laughs) But during the course of the movie, you are expected to believe he is maintaining two relationships, including being cool with an underage relationship, and that he's a martial arts expert who can beat the crap out of this or that people. He is completely unbelievable in any one of these. And in terms of the relationship between him and his Wallace roommate, Wallace does all the adult stuff, he has spent so much time mewling as he puts the letters S-U-X on the refrigerator and goes, Oh, why me? I can't break up with my teenage girlfriend. And he's you like, know, oh, this is so... Path-. He is so beyond pathetically inadequate in every aspect of what he's asked to do.
1: No, all right, it's Sarah time, because... <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, the, the serotonin
2: after that,
1: right? No, he... All the reasons that you just stated are actually why I think he works well in this film. Because he is someone with a certain limited persona. When you think of Michael Assara, you think of kind of dorky, passive, doesn't want to, you know, not aggressive in any way. But yet I think Michael Cera as an actor is capable of having an edge to him. And I will cite primarily Molly's game. And even though that's made much later than this, I think you show you see that he's capable of having that rough edge of just being an asshole character, basically one who's concerned for himself. Here, you're dealing with what's essentially a parody of someone in their early 20s who doesn't want to face reality who doesn't want to grow up who doesn't want to do the hard thing of breaking up with his girlfriend when he meets someone else he likes better and he actually does whine and say oh this is so hard i don't want to do it and none but none of that is they the movie knows that and michael Sarah knows that he, he's aware of his image and he knows what he's doing and that's why it's so works to me very well when you go from that to someone who has to like have these fight scenes because it, it's so incongruous but that's how he's going to grow up and th- this movie again kind of uh, to me it, one of the, its fault is that it repeats kind of the arc of the other stories we've seen in Shaun of the Dead but This character will grow up and, you know, at the end, he's granted the power of, he achieves self-worth level, you know, and he gets a special sword when he has self-worth. Sarah is very good at that because he plays the action scenes as the laughs, as the larks he knows they are. You know, there's a scene where he runs in the same, he does the Tom Cruise run, right? With his his arms going up and down. And it's very knowing nod to that. And... It's funny to see Michael Sarah do that because the movie knows what who the actor is. He knows what his persona is, and it plays them very well. Well,
2: my take on Michael Sarah is that he was the poor man's Jesse Eisenberg before Jesse Eisenberg became the poor man's Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> and I gotta side side with Al here. He he just doesn't work for me. And and one of the main ways he doesn't work is for this story to be in any way believable or for us to care about it you have to see some chemistry between the main couple and i saw none and i didn't think it was uh the fault of mary elizabeth winstead it was basically because michael sarah has this one note and they needed that visual of the sh- of the sword to show that he found his self confidence and self worth because he wasn't expressing that he, now. If he
0: exactly the same.
2: Yeah, if you put him in a, a smaller role, like I, I I like him in Arrested Development. He shows up, does a little bit of the Michael Sh- Sarah shtick that he can do, but an entire movie of it with no variation for me w- was just exhausting, and I'm I'm just wondering when. Is this guy going to show some other aspects to his character than the two uh, expressions that Michael Ceres <laughs> needs to be able to do? I'm, I'm
0: actually with Peter with what he said earlier because you said that he was a, a parody of this kind of level of, of awkwardness, and I completely agree, which makes it so, so much more diminished than what Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz was doing. Those guys, I felt for those people – I felt that though that these are they, these were real concerns that people have. But Michael Sara's depiction does not help. It puts it to just a, a degree that which is just ridiculous when I watch him fighting I'm just why why am I watching this shit. But apart from that, it's basically his character. I think actually the writing of his character is a parody of those feelings. Like when you said it was like his first PG-13 movie, like I think PG-13 was too strong because I think that subject matter is just phenomenally juvenile. He, he is just such a mewling little wuss, just in and in, in how he approaches everybody, and it's such a ridiculous, passive puppy dog like affection that he delivers for Ramona Flowers. There's so little engagement or awareness of what he's of what his character is doing that I just like. I felt that this could have been done by 10-year-olds, frankly.
1: I I, I guess I don't understand then, because if you're saying the character is written as someone who – or the character is written as a parody of these kind of immature – unworthy feelings you have when you're infatuated with someone, but Michael Sarah is playing that well. I mean, to me, that's he's doing what the movie is asking him to do. And then like if that's who the character is supposed to be, he's essentially his persona is exactly who this character is supposed to be. And what I like about it is that he he's look, that's his wheelhouse, right? Like that that's why you cast Michael Sarah in this role. The next step up from that is that he has to be workable in these action scenes. And be funny at the same time, and to me, he does pull that off. Like that, le- the last battle scene where he is there's it's in a club and he's um, fighting Jason Schwartzman and Jason Schwartzman's Legion. Just his physical performance in that scene is very well done. I think I I bought the way he moved, and I presume it's at least part. I mean, I'm sure some of it is a stunt double, but he's in it a lot too. And look, I bought his him being able to physically move in the way he did. And the movement that's expected of him there is video game movement. It's never supposed to be real. So the fact is that you're dealing with a parody of one version of a 20-year-old growing up to another, uh, another version of that that same person as an older man, as an older, basically go from early 20s to later 20s and the maturity that goes with it. Here that's delivered through, you know, the video game uh, genre. But he's, the fact that he takes you with him on that and that he's capable of both ends of that, to me, that does work. I don't think he fails anything that the script asks him to do. I do agree with you that the script has issues. But he's doing exactly what he's asked to do
0: i'm just going to go and quickly add that in my my perspective they're not developed a video game console with enough resolution to make me believe that he's going to uppercut anyone on earth
1: (laughs) that's just not believable i don't care how much he's roided well so would you would you want like chris evans who's in this movie to play that who would you want who
0: who would i want um, I think I would want like a, a maybe a teenage version or a young James Cagney. Cagney would completely com- completely sell something like that. Somebody who has somebody who has a an internal intensity, and that's something he, the dude is complete failure at doing any sort of intensity. He just can't do it. He can he can be an asshole, but that even that assholeness in Molly's Game, which I do agree with you, he's effective at. Even that comes in a passive aggressive kind of way, but. The Scott Pilgrim, for the fact that, like, I think he's the Pilgrim character is kind of a very childish notion on these kind of things. He's he needs to have both, he needs to both, like, have this anxiety side of things and the confusion, but he also just needs to have these intense feelings. And that's a part that I'm sorry I can't find that he does. But, um, let's go, let's go switch really quick to some of the different visual qualities, which I would say, even with. Like, from Hot Fuzz, this is clearly a step up.
2: Yes? I can't agree that it's a step up. I think it's a step down. Is that right? Yes, because visually, exciting visuals for me have to be done in a deliberate way. hmm And we talked about the quick takes, the uh, the hip-hop takes from, from Hot Fuzz. Yeah. And how they were used for very particular purposes. Mm-hmm. Scott Pilgrim has much much more but for me these effects are not used deliberately they're very haphazard they're obviously they're going for this video game mm-hmm. uh, feel to it but just like in a Michael Bay film when there's nothing but explosions everywhere and gigantic cgi is falling out of the sky and so much is happening that that you just no longer care and and i think that's the trap that that this film uh fell into on a on a visual way you're constantly relying on camera trickery whether the story calls for it or not whether whether it advances the story or not it's just stuff being thrown at you
0: that's really interesting Uh, i I'm a lot more charitable towards what it's doing, though I do agree with you that the the kind of underlying structure just makes the thing, the idea of more and more exes get doing more and more fights, does dampen, does dampen like the narrative drive from it. However, and part of it is from my background is I'm a more. Uh, I can't say more because I don't know how many video games you play. I've I've been involved on video computer. Does games does
1: Pac Man so count?
0: Um, uh, well, I know of him.
1: <laughs> the the, uh, <laughs> the last video game system I had was Super Nintendo. So, mm.
0: and and I can say that and I can say that um, that this is informed by video games. Those things that you think are discrepancies, I found I find. Uh, uh, very much in tune with how video games do things the idea on the for example the idea of the extra lot li- of earning the extra life <laughs> uh, I think works out really well as also the idea of pulling the, the different kind of swords of knowledge out of your out of your chest So and and in fact in a really I think then very nice touch of the main bad guy deresol de resing to quote the old Tron way of things as he gives his final speech is really nicely done. I also think that visually this does the Sin City trick of effectively dealing with the, how dynamic a graphic novel can be. They're doing split they're doing split frames, they're doing re, uh, really quick cuts, re- diagonals, where you see two different uh, situations. And they're all, I think, delivered in a really nice dynamic way, which is different than what he was doing. Maybe it's a sideways move, but it's different than what he was doing in, in Hot Fuzz.
1: There's clearly a bigger budget on this movie. He has a lot more in his bag of tricks now. This is also the first film where he works with Bill Bill Pope as his DP, and he'll work with Pope from here on out for the rest of the movies we talk about. And I think you see working with like a Hollywood uh, guy like Bill Pope, who's worked on The Matrix, mm. um, and he and he also worked with Sam Raimi on the Spider-Man films. Someone who's done these big budget films, right, with all kinds of special effects. I think you see his collaboration here start to pay off now we think we're again saying the same thing different ways like i don't think there's too much style um there's just not enough story for the style going forward like i think there's a better balance there sure
0: sure and i just want to briefly harp in on two different things that i just adore about this film one is which that big final battle is when scott pilgrim must face himself and it turns out they're they're both cool with it. They both Neg- go through it separate ways. Scots. <laughs> yes, <Neg-a> Scots. <laughs> Love how they did that. And I have to give a very special shout out for every single second of the vegan police. <laughs> that vegan their arrival, <laughs> the way they treat the, the way they treat him, the way they're uh, they're pointing their guns, then they realize that he, he ate a parmesan sandwich once. And even when they leave and they just jump up and high five, go, yeah, a successful vegan job. Well done. <laughs> just uh, was, perfect.
2: I, I, perfect. Uh, the vegan was a uh, former Superman, Brandon Routh. Yes. <laughs>
1: and, yes.
0: And he works very superheroic manner, too.
2: I,
1: I love when he's defeated that his defeat is, is uh, visually indicated by his hair going limp. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's he's lost his pomade, it's gone
2: <laughs> yeah. so, if, we, if we kept the three evil exes, he would be one that would stay
0: Right, right, to be,
2: to be sure
0: From Pilgrim,
2: he returns
0: to his ice cream based uh, film subjects In The World's End in uh,
2: 2013 Last time we met
1: was a lonely close together so riding we ate food we drank wine everybody out a good time except you. you were talking about
2: the end of the world
0: this is about middle aged Gary King once again played by Simon Pegg As he seeks to relive his useful glory days by gathering up his four high school buddies and returning to their hometown of Newton Haven to complete the pub crawl they never completed when they were younger. The people of Newton Haven might have something to say about that, if in fact they are people at all.
2: Well, starting out, again, kudos to Simon Pegg, because... Here is a character that is completely different from both of his earlier characters. An amazing trying, Kind of a nasty piece of work here. Mm-hmm. He's this uh, middle aged guy who, who has these memories of when he was the shit in high school and acts like he's still the shit, wearing his old clothes and trying to recapture the role of leader among his little gang who have now all grown up to be middle-aged respectable people and with jobs and stuff
1: Mm -hmm. yeah this is another we talked about the difference in the characters peg and frost played from shawn of the dead to hot fuzz and both take a similar challenge here yes where you know Peg is now like a complete fuck up, like someone who's looking back on his glory days, thinking that was the best time of his life. And at first it's played as a joke and then later um, through a plot development, it's actually played for real emotional darkness. So that's that's again, Peg challenging himself with a different kind of role. And another nice uh, touch this movie has is it makes Nick Frost here the responsible one this time. Yes, right, he, he is Mr. a revelation in this yeah. one. Yeah.
0: He is such a great voice. He's such a great voice of reason and such a presence. You, if you saw him for the first time in The World's End, I would swear you would never have imagined he would have been the the goofball farting zombie from Shaun of the Dead. Is this guy? This guy?
1: Yeah, it's it's really smartly done. They're not repeating themselves, and the fact that they're you have this fresh perspective to look at is really makes you evaluate what the movie's trying to do. Because if they were just repeating their same "quote unquote" signature roles, it would just be like a greatest hits package, right? And that's not what this movie is doing. It's again dealing with where where are presumably pagan right at in their lives. Well, they're now in their late 30s. They're not young anymore. Yeah. So they're when you look back, how do you reconcile getting to middle age? Like, how do you deal with that? How do you emotionally accept that?
2: Yeah, it's the best midlife crisis film since 10, yeah. uh, I would say. And nice. it's also the furthest from the genre it's trying to parody because we do eventually get... To the Alien Invader, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatcher plot, mm-hmm. but that doesn't happen till well into the film. Yeah. So we've got a lot of character development before mm-hmm. that. A lot of these five friends played by excellent actors like Patty Considine, Martin Freeman, uh, and Eddie Marsan, all with their own issues and their own relationships. Uh, to pegs character Mm -hmm. and what's what's wonderful about it is how they are constantly undercutting this attempt at you know recapturing youth i'm going to go and say something vaguely heretical to you
0: brad this this in one of the ways this is i think the greatest one of those three films is it's in a it's a little bit like Edgar writes Nashville, because each one of those, you're so right about those characters, they're all distinct. They all react to Peg's um, uh, quest in a completely different way, and they are sketched in very nicely. They all have a different attitude upon what does ind- and different... Motivation behind joining Peg on this quest, and they have motivations of their own for completing or pursuing this quest. And those are born out and they interact in just really fascinating ways throughout the course of this movie. Well, it's not a one man show or two person show by any means.
1: No, I, and I think the test for a type of movie like this is would you want to hang out with these guys? And I think you do, right? I oh, mean, it, right. You, you, it feels authentic. And I, I'm, I, in listening to the commentary, I know some of the storylines were taken from like their own youths. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the fact of dating your friend's sister, that was yeah. something like Edgar Wright actually did. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, you know, there's so many touches on, you know, the sister's of Mercy shirt. And yes. it just felt, it feels like they're really drawing on their own youth. Mm-hmm. All the music is from that period, I believe. It's very much people going back and looking at their own lives. And it, that authenticity is felt.
2: And comic timing is not forgotten. It's still, maybe not, maybe the uh, str- the strong drama takes more time here than the comedy than yes. in, in the other two parts of the trilogy. Mm. But there, there is something really entertaining about watching this guy put a pub crawl above all else. Yes. And there's some echoes of, of hot fuzz here. In how the the town itself is treated, because one of the the more subtle themes of the film is kind of how well the town ain't what it used to be either. These really unique pubs have been uh, yes. turned into chains, where two of them look exactly the same. Right,
0: <laughs> that's such a great that's such a great point. And this parts to a design of when you finally see what the aliens are like, especially internally which I find just straight up brilliant because when they start to be disassembled during various fights and encounters with them, they look like they're made out of these big Lego pieces that their limbs just detach and their heads just detach. The ultimate example of prefab people, right? Mm. <laughs> and, w- and so one of the things that is running under this whole idea, like you said on the town, it's about consumerism. It's about homogenization of uh, culture and society, and what does it mean to be a part of it, and and what do you lose as a result? That's that's why one of the cool details is Martin Freeman's character, who, spoiler alert, finds that he's doing things in an altered form at the end that was very similar to what he was doing as a middle-aged person in the beginning, right down to the fact that the alien's insides are bright blue, and he's always seen in the beginning with a Bluetooth glowing blue in his earpiece. Ah. He's always talking. I mean, oh my God, a whole social thing just done with a freaking earpiece. Edgar Wright takes it to another level. This is a, not just another level in terms of the char- that there's more characters and more interaction between the characters, but he also has a high hurdle because unlike the seven X's. Now there's 12 pubs and each of which are depicted visually in a distinct way but each one of which is ties into the different uh, uh, crises that are faced. Like I think one of the places is called like the Old Maid and it's a former girlfriend of one of the characters is now been uh, converted into an alien in, in their and they fight. Wor- and the idea that the end, the last pub they visit, the world's end, is no coincidence either. But what does, I mean, and and on top of all that, what does that mean on the world's end? This does the apocalypse in terms of growing up in such a great way. You look at what everyone's job was in the beginning, and then you see what they end up doing in the, in the end, including Martin Freeman with half a head, <laughs> which is not making him any less effective a person. <laughs> what that, right, what does that say? And also, to what that theme, Peter, that you brought out so uh, fascinatingly earlier in our podcast about learning through failures. It does this to a whole human level when the aliens... The greatest human triumph might be that the aliens try to convince them that they know how to do things better, and the humans ain't having it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, the uh, S- uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost make a really good case that we are far too uh, venal, stubborn, and stupid to rule. Yes! <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and you know what? That's a really nice message. <laughs>
1: That is true. And what I like about that end scene, too, is that's kind of the comic bit. Right before that, they actually have like a well choreographed fight scene yes. between the two of them. That, I mean, honest to God, that packs an emotional wallop. Like, it, does. it really does feel like, you know, these two characters working through something that they're at odds, their friendship has been lost, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's really feeling like it, there's real honest emotion there mm-hmm. of them working through it and like, the Frost character being so disappointed in someone he looked up to for so much of his life. And then the Pay character were finally having to admit that, you know, that this is all he had left and he never got any better after high school. And this is where you get the reveal that he had attempted suicide. And, yeah. and you know, there's a lot, there's a real honest um, darkness to that of people working their way through it that in the middle of this comic like yes. invasion is done just very well yes
0: it's phenomenal when a film can go and like treat uh, the exact same situation in a fun comic wonderfully delightful adventure and treat the fight scenes which by the way are choreographed to a jackie chan like level complete with a drunken master sequence where the Simon peg just cannot get a drink because these aliens <laughs> keep kicking the drink out of his hand <laughs> And they're treated for so much fun and wonderment when you see it, and then you still engage in it on the dark undercurrent of it as well.
2: You know, maybe one of the most impressive things about Edgar Wright is how adeptly he handles tonal shifts.
0: So true, man. So true. That... What, during that big argument with the al- aliens, the aliens are saying, "Look, we can give a better, we can make a better version for you." By the way, it's a cute tangent that the another James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, is one of the main advocates. Yes. <laughs> I, it's too bad that Roger Moore wasn't uh, around for Baby Driver.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I really want a Lazenby appearance, personally. Oh yeah, make that happen. It could still happen. Yeah, yeah. it could still
0: happen. <laughs> um, but while they're making the, while they're making the arguments uh, with the with the aliens on it, the aliens say, "No, no, we can do." better why take a look and then they have descending with a holy light with their sisters of mercies no corrosion playing is just a magnificent version of the young simon Pegg. his total dream of what why he was going to the pub in the first place and, and right at that moment where you think oh my god this is what he's been looking for the whole time the the young alien peg gets shot in the chest and <laughs> old Simon Peg goes, no one else could be the king. <laughs> he's well, like, no, Well, <laughs> so he's even undercutting himself.
1: <laughs> well, no, what he does there, which I think is really neat, is he literally kills his younger self. Yes. Which right. is like how I mean, I mean that is growing up, right? right? I mean, like, that is like moving on.
0: Well, right, except that of course that he doesn't move on, but just it's it's super well, right, because it engages on these multiple levels. He wants to move on while retaining himself, even to the extent that if you have an idealized version. Version. It's like, nah, now nah, you ain't me, man, because <laughs> you see his ultimate fate, and which is also a wonderful Twilight Zone irony, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's kind of the ultimate example of how awful it is to get what you want.
1: Well, let's talk about that a little bit because I don't know if I read that quite the same way, and I've struggled with the ending a little bit. Okay. Okay. So, so just to get us there, so the end of the film comes when you know after the speech you guys talked about the aliens literally say fuck it and leave yep. <laughs> and that makes the earth go dark basically like the grid is off like yep. there's no power there's we're back living in medieval times right, because
2: it was it turns out it was the aliens who were responsible for all the
1: technological uh, advances right yep. so now we're they're back to living a very rural life and you see where all the characters are and then at the end you cut you find S- simon Pegg's character isn't with them and then that you follow him into um, a bar where the the what they refer to as blanks the du- the dupes humans who now have come back online of their own
0: dupes by the way what a brilliant conception on yeah. the word level on he, the literal
1: level <laughs> so so he's now there with the the false versions of the, his younger friends and yeah. he goes into a bar and doesn't order a beer like he's not drinking anymore uh-huh. and he, and he's and he's with um, you know he asks for a wa- for five waters for him and his friends. And, and the bartender says, we're not going to serve them, but we'll serve you. And at and, and that point, the four behi- guys behind him, their eyes light up as they had before, and he, but he's still human. And the way I read that is, is that he, he it, I don't read it as a negative because I think what he's doing is he's still the rebel, basically. And he now has like his team with him, but he's always going to fight against the powers that be. That's right. Whether it's the aliens who he actually made leave, or now it's the humans uh, he's, yeah. he's always going to be the underdog, sort of the outsider. And well, now, and now yeah. he's found a way to, to live that way, basically. Right.
0: Better to rule with dupes than, than, than serve among humans. <laughs> yes, and I absolutely see that in, in his mind, it's a triumph for him. But also, look at the dark. What does that mean for him? He's, again... Total credit to Wright for writing it with Peg and for Peg to play him as what turns out to be a total bastard. Because I think earlier during the fight scene with Nick Frost, Frost points out, you don't even like us as people. Mm -hmm. We're just your, you know, we're just like like your lackeys. We're just there to serve you as the king or something like that. I think he even says that
2: phrase. And one of their friends is also very unsubtly named Prince. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Dude. uh, Right. Great point. The The undercurrent there is he never respected them as other individuals. They were, even when they were kids, it was just there to have him be the guy who leads them. Mm -hmm. And that he is able, and it's such a weird tragedy that he gets to do what he wants. And it's so empty, but he's loving it. So what does, I mean, wow, what an amazing... Cynical, dark statement in what a movie that has so many moments of hilarity and, and mirth to it.
2: It's at no point. Does it go in obvious directions, even in the alien invasion uh, parody stuff? Because you can look at this, you can see kind of in the the thing, invasion of the body snatchers, right. uh, movies that that traffic in the same kind of ideas, but this isn't. Directly relating to any of them in the way that Shaun of the Dead directly related to the Romero zombie films.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, I think this is much. Right. I, I think the the focus here is on the characters, and I think they intend this to be the end of the story for this group of people together. It's not they, the same characters haven't been played through the movies, but this has an elegiac, very much an ending feel to it, right. where like I don't think I, I think. I get the feeling that their story has been told and I wouldn't be surprised if these guys don't work together again. Mm. Mm. It's, it's just, it feels like this is the end for them. It's literally the world's end and there's no further to go.
0: Mm. That's a really interesting point. And I think I'm exactly at the middle of that, of that perspective that you have or that attitude that you, that you have in that if this is the last time that this collection or the partnership Shows up. I think that's a great ending, a a a wonderful ending. I also really quickly have to piggyback on your statement, is like that he right. He's not trafficking in genre, like taking whole genre concepts wholesale. He's fine tuning everything. Everything has more depth and more creativity done in smaller and smaller sections. But at the same time, I think calling this these films a trilogy does not just a disservice because, oh wow, films with ice cream in them are a part of a trilogy. I kind of like semi-blame Peter Jackson for making everything, everything (laughs) needs to be some trilogy epic. But what's great about Wright is that Wright doesn't care about that. He is caring to tell different stories with these characters, and he's always looking and striving to do something distinct for him. So if he does a collaboration with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg in the future... I have
2: the fullest confidence that it, it'll be done. It'll be done well. But uh, Peter's point earlier, when he talked about how all the films have growing up in common, I think really does bring the three films together thematically, even if though even though they're completely different uh, genre wise, yeah. plot wise, and character wise. Yeah,
0: I I just love that, and it's no slight against, for example, the tra- the train spotting T 2s film that came out. It's it's not a slide about whatever you think about that film. But by virtue of saying it's a sequel or a part of a trilogy or what have you, there's an implication that it is a rehash. And that's why I think calling this a trilogy does a little bit of a disservice because at no point are these things it's part of a theme, it's on a continuum for the theme, but it is not rehashed. Every movie starts from square zero about what interesting things we can put in it. And what details can we put it at this moment of, our, of the writers, of the characters, of the actors' lives?
1: Yeah, I, I, I go back to saying, like, these are restless artists. Like, they're yes. not content to repeat themselves. And to that point, um, we've talked in each of the films about what Edgar Wright is doing visually. And I think here we see a different, slightly different style. You mentioned, like, the Jackie Chan fight scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think there's less quick cutting in those like the scenes are are, they're not all one take but they're more continuous takes right you really get the feeling of what the characters and the what the fight means physically and the camera follows people around rather than cut in a rapid Michael Bay type style Mm -hmm. and again I think he's adjusted he's here working again with bill pope um the movie does have cgi there's a giant cgi robot thing running around at the end but he he's adapted his style and it is definitely toned down a bit from scott pilgrim so i think he's adjusting his style again with the bigger budget the bigger plate bigger toy box um bigger bag of tricks but it it comes together very well
2: but as it turned out his next film didn't come together at all because Edgar Wright was supposed to join the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, his vision and Marvel's vision very much differed on uh, the hero Ant-Man, which uh, was eventually made into an adequate uh, entry with Paul Rudd. Don't know how different Edgar Wright's vision was. He did retain some uh, screenwriting Credit, mm-hmm. but apparently him and the the suits at Marvel and Disney just uh, didn't agree on a, a direction, and they wanted their films to be this uh, more uniform, interlocking thing. And no having seen what Edgar Wright is capable of, we can imagine that he had a more unique vision for it.
0: Mm. Did did either of you guys see the movie? Yeah. Um, okay, I, I I didn't. I am not a fan of. The massive comic book franchise movies in general, and ordinarily there are very few things I would rather not do instead of watching a quote-unquote superhero who can go be defeated by going, I am Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> the end. However, I have to say, Edgar Wright in being involved in it was a, was definitely getting me into go in, incredibly motivated to see his take on this kind of superhero. Genre, so I'm sorry it didn't work out. In what ways did the resulting movie uh, fall
2: short? It was short? Okay. (laughs) Sorry. No, apologies by (laughs) me. (laughs) You know, I'm more of a fan of what I consider the better Marvel movies the First Avengers, the Captain America's, the Black Panthers, but. Below that I think there are some Marvel movies that just are kind of okay. And, and Ant-Man is that. It's uh taking on the format of a heist movie and incorporating into that pretty much the general ingredient the general ingredients you expect from Marvel. It's a it's a pleasant watch. I don't hate it. I I I didn't have a bad time watching it. But it's it's not something that uh, stuck with me for any significance.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I haven't seen uh, Ant-Man. I'm hit and miss on Marvel. I'll go to see. It, it's really just a matter of almost like a social thing. If some friends are going, I'll go. They're not, it's not anything I go out of my, out of my way to see. Um, that said, had Edgar Wright directed Ant-Man, I would have gone, certainly. I do feel like this is kind of like losing the battle to win the war. Um, You know, he didn't get to make Ant Man, but we've seen Edgar Wright make a big budget PG thirteen movie, and where he, you know, as we mentioned with Scott Pilgrim, there was maybe a feeling that he was boxed in a little bit there. Mm -hmm. He certainly would have been boxed in by Marvel and Disney. Um, I mean, it made sense from a business perspective for him to take that step in his at that point in his career, but do I feel sad that he? that he's not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No. I mean, that's fine. I
0: think that's kind of, one of the, what might be, the be one of the better things that has happened in his career, is to uh, not get involved in uh, that process, which will uh, assimilate him as almost as deliberately as the dupes from the world's <laughs> end.
2: And it also allowed Edgar Wright to pursue his next project. They call me Baby Driver
1: feel up above. Scoop down the road, what's my number? I
2: wonder how your engines feel. Chevrolet. 2017's Baby Driver follows a getaway driver recruited to pay off a debt to his crime boss, Doc. Suffering from tinnitus, he drowns out the noise with a constant soundtrack of music in his earphones. He'll need every note to survive an increasing number of psychotic heist recruits and drive him and his new love to safety. Yeah,
0: Was it seven ex-recruits that he was uh, dealing with? <laughs> nah, no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think this movie is kind of very fascinating in how it's similar in some ways Uh, good and bad to his other experiment outside of the Pegoverse of um, uh, Scott Pilgrim. Uh, What what do you guys think?
2: Well, I I agree that there's a a connection there because he's trying to do something that could end up a little gimmicky in a way that I think Scott Pilgrim did in his use of music as a constant force in the film, not just on the soundtrack, but as a character motivator. So the things that are audio take the place of, of things that are visual in the other film, but I think the results work so much better here.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, and just to state kind of what he, he's going for here is these are choreo action scenes choreographed to the rhythm of various songs. You hear the songs in full in, in the, in the movie and the action proceeds to match the beats in the song. Um, And there are a number of these scenes throughout the course of the film. Um, This is essentially uh, an American crime car chase genre film set to music for large portions of its set pieces.
2: And, And I really thought I was done... Being able to be surprised and enchanted by a car chase movie, I didn't think there was another car chase that could tell me something new about car chases. but thank you, baby driver, for uh, proving me wrong well, on well that. there's
1: there's so much i mean I think you know we're working at least for me we're in the universe of diminished expectations these mm-hmm. days because um this movie came out in June. These days, a summer movie means wall-to-wall CGI. You you don't get the sense of any adventurous shooting in the film or anything like that. Whereas Baby Driver is all that. So much of it is done in camera. I'm mm-hmm. I I, listening to the commentary. One of the things I was going, interested to hear was how much CGI was there. And there's very, very little. They made a conscious effort to have the car chases be real. The lead car is never digital. Um, you know, there are stunt drivers, obviously. But like just to have this done in camera, shot on film, you just don't get that anymore. And I haven't felt this kind i haven't been transported by a summer film in this way in probably a decade
2: because cgi is death to a car chase movie that's the thing that's exciting about classic car chase movies even if they're not in good films the car chases themselves because you know there's a they're real stuntmen there's Real physics happening. There's real, real drivers, and watching Baby Driver, I didn't, I wasn't, I've kind of figured there wasn't that CGI because I was invested, and I know when I see a film like, I think there was a James Bond film that completely took me out of it because I could tell this car chase was CGI. So I'm, I'm like. Well, it's a cartoon car. You don't need a cartoon car. There are real cars. Also,
0: tanks aren't invisible.
2: (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah.
0: Pete, you're so completely right. We live, unfortunately, in a fast and a furious world where the cars are able to leap from skyscraper to skyscraper. And frankly, at this point, they might as well start turning into talking robots halfway through for all the accommodations to anything a human being will believe. Uh, just quick tangent on that is that one of those CGI fests involved people leaping off a building and using these like hang gliding uh, suits and they literally did this. They literally did this off a building in Chicago when were filming three years ago. and no one believed it because they were all so inured with CGI that they just thought, oh it's all BS they' all they cut the strings and everything like that. When you do in-camera effects with a real car and real stuntmen, even though it's very shiny and the presentation is so polished, you feel that on that subconscious level. And so the heights and the danger and the suspense that comes from these chases are readily felt in a way that Fast and the Furious series films will never be able to do.
1: And. That is all true. And the car chases here make up a good part of the film's highlights. Um, I also want to touch on two other scenes, which are so visually imaginative and detailed in ways that I, I didn't think possible in a movie of this scale. <laughs> right. um, the first one is after the opening car chase, which I think we should mention is set to the song Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion.
0: Great band and a great <laughs> tune by Yeah, them.
1: it's awesome. And, Following the conclusion of that chase sequence, uh, the character Baby just goes out to grab coffee for the, the gang. And it's set to Harlem Shuffle. And it's this choreographed sequence of him walking one shot down the street Um, with all these background visuals tied to the lyrics of the songs and the movements of our our lead actor, Ansel Elgort, um, in rhythm with the song. He has training as a dancer and you you see that physicality come through. Um, It's really just a stunning scene, something that You can tell has been in Edgar Wright's head for a long time because there's no way you get this detailed a scene down to the beats that he does without living with something like that for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then lastly, there's another foot chase later in the film following a botched robbery, um, where, um, baby runs throughout the city of Atlanta. And we should mention again here, similar to Scott Pilgrim, um, Atlanta is a city that commonly stands in for other cities here. Mm -hmm. It's set in Atlanta, shot in Atlanta, and Mm -hmm. you feel that grounding as well hear babies running through Atlanta and it's, there's a it's, uh, a scene set to you the song Hocus Pocus which is kind of a six minute plus prog song um, that is just beautifully done again this time instead of car you know stunt cars you have stuntmen running all over the city um, and it's just as viscerally uh, just as much of a visceral wallop as the car chase.
2: Yeah music is so important and they've chosen so meticulously The Wright songs, probably literally the Edgar Wright songs that Uh he's been listening to all these years and imagined what they'd uh, look like choreographed on film. Uh, Another brilliant song selection I alluded to earlier is Queen's Brighton Rock which Baby has chosen as his ultimate tune. And so the climactic uh, action scene is choreographed to Brighton Rock kind of going in and out of the soundtrack. And it's just so visceral the way this music is used and the love of music that this film expresses. Yeah,
0: like we were saying earlier about how his... Edgar Wright's approach on filmmaking it just gets more and more fine-tuned and more and more closely grained as his career has gone on, whereas you'd say in Shaun of the Dead, like he lifts whole sections from classic zombie tropes and uses them and puts them to use in a kind of way that, say, a Tarantino might, but it's finer and finer in, in The World's End and one of the things that makes this movie in- phenomenally triumphant, a very incredibly successful part of this film, is that it does this and the kind of cross-hatching that he was doing with Hot Fuzz of two different things on an atomic level, on an atomic level. He is, it is an action car chase musical. But not like some Bollywood thing where they're just doing a normal chase and then go dance out of words. <laughs> it's not quoting a musical the way a film like La La Land quotes musical sections and go, oh, that's from that musical, and so on. It's built from the note up. Every cut. Every gunshot, a car door slamming, someone putting on sunglasses, putting on his earbuds, making the squeal of a tire is all set out into the music.
1: Windshield wipers. It, yeah,
2: exactly. Just and it pours out of this film. And 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 Algard himself, and how he—you could tell how the music is motivating him, and how every moment. On screen, he just about, he's got these earbuds in and he's not only reacting to the people around him but the music in his head. So true.
0: It's like it re- harkens me back to those classic Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers dance sequences which are may have different relevance to the story and different of the films that they collaborated on but you always saw a level of creativity and just a level of... Sheer enthusiasm for that creativity and inspiration from these people dancing together. And this is what you get via action movie elements in, in that. And to, in, in that scene that you described, Peter, with, with him just walking around getting coffee. He's just finished a successful heist. And he's, so he's just basking sort of in the satisfaction of a job well done and a promise of a new day and so on. It harkens back to something from a film, a really cool film in its own right, 500 Days of Summer, after like the relationship is consummated, he's walking down the street and everyone's all, everyone's all happy. But I swear to you, in Baby Driver, it transcends it because it's, that in-camera effect is there. Every, like, it has to be timed to the, not just, like, to the microsecond, but he has to, like, like in one point, when the horns come in, he's right by the mural at the exact moment to hold his hands in the exact position so it looks like he's playing the horn in the mural. Right. It just, and it happens over and over and over and over again in, like, this sustained five-minute sequence. And I swear to you, it's like the contemplative kind of cinematic version of it because it is... Drawing in the details, but the details are naturally coming from the environment. They aren't cartoon birds that are part of a guy's imagination. It's the stuff that's all around him. And the effect for me is that it is, like, just a great, tremendous energizer. I remember when I left the theater, I would just look around at cars moving in traffic, and I would hum my favorite <laughs> song and think of my favorite song as the way cars were moving.
2: You know, And Baby Driver has even more arrows in its quiver because it's got a hell of a supporting cast. You've got Kevin Spacey, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm all at the top of their game, all doing genre stuff, but in in a really entertaining way. Particularly Jamie Foxx who is not necessarily just playing uh, a crazy guy but somebody for whom it's
1: really important that everybody else understands that he's crazy. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that to me was one of the best supporting performances last year. I mean, it didn't get you don't get recognized for comedies very often, but he's so full of menace in this film that I mean, I'm scared of him thinking about it right now. <laughs> you know, it just it's just so well done. And John Hamm too is playing like a level of um a threat level he's not usually at and he accomplishes that very well there's some wonderful mood lighting to accentuate his facial expressions in the last car chase scene which, the
0: film yes yeah. the, the last car chase scene um gets really has a dark crimson tinge to it that actually reminds me of like what's what nicholas winding Refn does with some of his some of his work like mm-hmm. especially drive and only god forgives but it's done with, gives a big car chase Excitement aspect uh, to these things. I, and I really like both like, what John Hamm uh, does and his um, girlfriend, uh, played by Isia Gonzalez. I think she did a really interesting take on, on her performance too, as well as his, her relationship with John Hamm. It's, there's also, I think, a, an interesting aspect of the movie that he sees parts of what Eghort's character. Is part of himself. There's some sort of like lost idealism that Ham that caught that I believe is the kind of the main motivator to cause Ham
2: to react as badly to, to him as he does by the end of, by the end of the movie. Well, yeah, he kind of freaks everybody out, but because he's so quiet, he doesn't really talk much, and that, that's even emphasized as he he gets into a romantic relationship and you know his new girlfriend is like, yeah, you don't say anything and he because he replaces speech with music Mm -hmm. in his life but what it also does is, is makes him very much a blank slate for everybody else around him to fill their ideas with and since everybody else around him are psychotic criminals, <laughs> they're all wondering, you know, just, you know, what is this guy's level of menace and craziness himself? Or is mm-hmm. he is he in the wrong place? Is he some so, dude who just walked in there, but then, you know, when he shows his driving skills? Yeah, and,
0: you know. yeah, this is, uh, yeah, in a way, I, I see what you're, I see that's an aspect of the... If you look at the movie that way, it could be a little more rewarding than than unfortunately how I how I viewed it because he's it might be the all Hazard Balthazar of car chase action movie musicals. <laughs> he's he's um, because unfortunately I I mean I wish I could agree with you guys on on Jamie Foxx, but I found him a a failure on on two aspects really maybe yeah wow because yeah because for two reasons first off is that he is such a complete poser uh, in, uh, in that just like every aspect of him being men- menacing is i just felt was opposed to be fair actually it might be a um it might be something the movie's trying to do because i remember there's a scene where he has a badass name of four four letters mm-hmm. and then kevin spacey sets on straight by saying like they know your other name leon <laughs> so maybe it's working on that angle but i think the bigger problem for me is that Dude, you do not need to be all up like this guy all up a baby driver's business like at all. You just go go do your scheme, go make your money. And if you don't like him, just beat the crap out of him. But but he's just like so dedicated to caring of where where does you live? What are you listening to? Oh, are you going to this diner? Are you liking this girl, dude? What the hell do you care? I, and I, and I mean and and in fact, Ham to an extent at least has a little bit of an emotional connection. So I understand why. But even some of you think about it, he gets way more angry for. For uh, baby driver, then he has really any right to. Who just it was a screwed up heist that causes the events to happen, and it's not his fault. So, but but the movie's are like, oh no, what does what does baby driver think? What does baby driver think? And 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 you're right, he's such a complete cipher to a, in a way that I found to be quite honest. Um, it was kind of defective in a way. He just he's his the way he responds to the world is. So one sided through music that I could not even begin to develop him, think of him as a human character, more like a walking type of music.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think that's fair in, in regard to Baby himself. We don't get a lot from him as an actor, but the trade off is we're seeing him through other people's eyes. And that's where I, I disagree with what you were just saying, because I think. The supporting cast is very well motivated in how they're behaving. When uh, the twist happens to John Hamm's character, yeah, I could see how that would completely set him off for the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. Now, for Jamie Foxx, he can't just off Baby because... Then he has to deal with Kevin Spacey's uh, crime organization or whatever he's running, which is never made really clear. But this is a guy who's part of the heist that he has an interest in. But now, let's—if he's not really crazy, but the way he makes it in the criminal world is to convince everybody he's crazy. What's going to make him more upset and agitated? Than the one guy who just doesn't react to him.
0: That's a really intre- that's a really interesting point. But the movie does get to a point where they literally just capture um, baby and hold him hostage, and uh, and in fact they point a gun to his face on numerous occasions. And no, he certainly looks intimidated there <laughs> to the extent that he has a facial expression at all. So I where I see the initial irritation, I can I can get that. I think it just takes it way too far. This is a guy who's way more interested in a driver than anyone has any right to. But you know what? That frankly pales behind, like, Kevin Spacey. Now, the thing is, I really hope this film will be enjoyed 20 years from now after, quote-unquote, the troubles that have befallen Mr. Spacey have fallen out of the public consciousness. Because right now... The idea of this guy who takes a young kid under his wing and God darn it, you need to have this kid. It needs to always be here. And I have to always ask this kid for for advice upon the heist that I set up. It just comes across as like, Whoa, there's some other reason, and it ain't that kid's driving, at least not of a car, let's put it that way. It comes across as horribly wrong in light of recent events. Yeah,
2: I would I would always caution against allowing real life uh, to as, intrude on our fiction as, as, too As much. would I, but hey man, he's... <laughs> I didn't get
0: the atom bomb about <laughs> his career, you know, he did. And so it's unfortunately, st- it's unfortunately still quote-unquote out there. That's why I would be better... That I think the film's reputation will increase as those those gossipy rumors fade. But that being said, like the other issue I have with the movie is that it's not even that like Baby Driver, the character Baby uh, functions as a as a uh, barely functions as a human being, um, uh, much less an adult one. It's like, did a baby have to write the script too? The final heist is one of the most ridiculously cursed heists that they still insist on pursuing in movie history time and time again like you just go no cancel the heist will you guys leave the cops are on to you you shot up a bunch of cops (laughs) every cop no you can't fence anything oh oh and then there's also the side thing that your that your driver has taped all of your conversations I'm like oh for god's sakes Kevin Spacey is has character supposed to be a mastermind here he's a master moron by the end <laughs> right down to the fact that like you're literally i think you literally are making all these heists just so you can get closer to baby honestly that's the only the best motivator because you sure can't plan for shit
1: <laughs> well do you know many crime movies where they're just like uh you know something's off here we'll just call it we'll just stop it that never happens oh he the, the problem the baby driver to me, if it has a flaw is that it falls back on genre trappings and characterizations, maybe too much. Like it really is there to uh, set up these amazing um, set piece sequences. He, he's writing here on his own. Like this is, I believe, as far as I know, the first movie he's written by himself. <laughs> correct. Yeah. And I think you see his strengths and his weaknesses with that. You see the the detail of the action scenes we talked about with the characters and the genre, he knows where to put the characters, but he doesn't really know how to write um, in the way that I presume Sa- Simon Pegg did with the other characters. Like You just don't feel the depth you did in the other films. But then again, like I don't think the movie is really going for that either. Like it, it, It's not like it's a character study. Um, it has enough character, but it has genre character. I feel like just
2: as... The Coronado Trilogy has a commonality. His two American films also have a a more tenuous, but a bit of a commonality in the use of high concept over character. And again, I think the big difference is that in Scott Pilgrim, it was undisciplined, but in Baby Driver, it's very disciplined. But it, it still seems like he has... An entirely different strategy when he's dealing with with his American movies.
0: That's a really interesting, and I, I I totally see where you're coming from on that because he's the concept is the concept is inspired. He follows through on that concept I brilliantly I think all the way through. Actually, my second favorite, apart from when he's walking down the street, is when of all people you have Gunrunner Cop Paul Williams, <laughs> and, and when they when they start they have a shootout. It's set to tequila complete with every like reload is set to the, the 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 languid rhythms of the of that song um so i think and that is absolutely successful but yeah in terms of subsuming character it those levels of of human insight that pervade the the simon Pegg ones are not i kind of really absent and the wish fulfillment once again um re, uh, shows up like in the end of, especially in the end of baby driver like For one thing, I think this is the weakest female character. um, The the love the quote unquote love interest is the weakest female character in any of Wright's films.
1: Well, I I don't think she's any weaker than the other characters. I I, I guess before when I felt like. Um, my problems with, for example, with Sean of the dead was that you had male characters, IE Sean written very, with a lot of depth and, mm-hmm. and a few my character without any yeah. here. I don't think really any of the characters are particularly deep and they're not, I mean, that's a flaw of its own, but it's not like it's out of balance. They're all on the same level. I think, um, hmm. it, it just, okay. uh, and I, again, I think that's something that that's not just not his strength. Like and to the extent you find a, a fault in the movie for that, that I, I I wouldn't argue with you. I, I just feel like, to me, like the, the writing of the characters is kind of good it's fine it doesn't it doesn't take a misstep it's just not the best part of the movie so you kind of have this baseline foundation of quality with these super high peaks of these set pieces yeah and that and that's why to me this movie works well it never the it never goes through you know there's never a floor you go through the bottom doesn't fall out at any point Mm. but you do reach these high peaks and that's to me what you know why the film works very well Yeah.
0: unfortunately to me the bottom does fall out by by the end um Some people had... I saw some people who had issues about the second half about how it turns into, like, a maniacal, psycho kind of thing uh, akin to, like, how Sunshine flubbed its ending. I don't particularly buy that because, ironically, I did feel for both... for Ham's performance, I get why he's so mad and it's depicted in such a evil, crimson, uh, chrome manner that I felt that that was successful. But that ending was... is such sugary pap that even, like, La La Land wouldn't accept it as... As this woman who has, hey, you know what, the lady from uh, Shaun of the Dead, she may have been like the thankless girlfriend, but at least she had specific issues with Shaun, right? And Ramona Flowers might have been a wish fulfillment girl, but she had some ambiguity about how she had to deal with her exes and the fact that she joined up with Schwar- Schwarzman's character was an interesting twist on there. But this girl is not interesting at all. She is nothing but the scru- but the plucky waitress who loves the loves this weirdo completely unconditionally. To the extent that she will wait for him outside prison sentence, which, by the way, should include him straight up murdering a guy for putting a pipe through his head. Well, <laughs> I, so I... it's such a, it's such a, it's such a fantasy that I literally think it's almost could be like the Brazil ending where he's really being tortured and it's just his uh, delusion. You, well, you, no,
2: you mentioned uh, Astaire Rogers movies earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it just brings up that you know a Hollywood ending is not necessarily inappropriate
1: for a movie like this. Exactly. Like it's where the movie should go in a way, right? It's been headed that way where the two of them are now set up. And and I know he's thinking about a sequel to this and it's set up maybe that the next movie is her story, you know? Like I think he actually says that on the commentary. That would be very interesting to me.
2: Well, any female protagonist yeah. would, would, would would be another a great challenge right. and a step
1: forward. But I do want to just quickly mention like two sets of collaborators on Baby Driver. He's again working with D.P. Bill Pope. This movie looks great. We talked about the, the Bathe in Red finale. Mm-hmm. And then the editors are Jonathan Amos and Paul Moklis. And the editing in this film, to get to the level of detail he needs, like those guys have to do a, a great job. There is, you, you need, they need, I think they should be recognized. One
0: of our, we're really lucky that in the Chicago Film Discussion Group that we have a, uh, uh, one of our fellow members is a film critic and film teacher named Colin Suter who is helping put together the Chicago Film Critics uh, Film Festival coming in the um, next couple weeks. And his group chose Best Editing, for baby driver to me best editing for baby driver is like how zemeckis should have won best director for whom framed roger Abbott. what they did in that particular field is so beyond dispute of technical brilliance that you just have to it's imperative for you to recognize it To have something like that edited to the microsecond and have it flow so completely smoothly in a way that makes things look like it's effortless is not just a triumph of editing. It literally moves the genre of editing forward. People are going... And by the way, that's part of one of the other things I really would do credit Baby Driver in that I think it is a movie of the future. I think people are going to be able to make movies like Baby Driver due to how technically well he put things together in that movie. So he's pushing the movie art form forward with this film.
1: Well, to the extent his success and Baby Driver was a big financial success, to the extent that it allows other filmmakers to shoot on film to, sh- for, you know, put the stunt work in camera. If that's the start of a trend, I'm all for that all day, any day. <laughs> Amen. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: But Peter, I think you you had mentioned that you actually uh, had an idea of what his next direction is going to be,
1: right? I, yeah, and I don't know, There, I haven't seen a lot of detail out there, but I do know that it's supposed to be an animated film. Which I think makes a lot of sense, right is in a different way, every bit the visualist that uh Wes Anderson is, and Wes Anderson's gone into two anim- you know stop motion animation films now, yes. and I think what that lets him them do is control every aspect of it, right like you can um you see this even and as much as I didn't like Ready Player One, the best parts of it are Steven Spielberg having complete free reign with the camera, and animation lets you do that, so I'm really interested to see what he would do with animation. He Um,
0: has actually shown and expressed an interest in animation from his very first full-length feature because Fistful of Fingers has a a pretty fun uh, animation of an an Indian attack depicted in the most cartoonishly delightful manner, which includes after they defeat the indians they turn it into an indian massacre theme park oh. <laughs> yeah but and so but it, but he's shown this interest from the very start
1: yeah and his brother uh is a an artist so i i don't know if that's who he's working with on the next film
0: but whether it's going to be an animated film or one of the other projects like infant driver or toddler driver if if he chooses to do that I I know me personally, I am very eagerly looking forward to Edgar Wright's next work. If it turns out, heck, if it turns out he makes a DC comic movie, I'm front in line
1: uh, to see that. I I, I guarantee you a DC movie will be better than whatever the last DC movie was. DC should be so lucky. (laughs) Guaranteed to be better than Justice League right now.
0: So I hope you guys that listening in have enjoyed our dash of enthusiasm towards the works of Edgar Wright. If uh, you guys have uh, favorite scenes, favorite moments, favorite jokes or favorite elements of his films or you want to comment on our approach to his work, uh, you can feel free to send an email our way at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We are found on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. Now on Spotify at Directors Club Podcast. Uh, You can uh, catch us and uh, comment on our Facebook site at Directors Club Podcast. And our episodes are available online at DirectorsClubPodcast.com. And we are on Twitter under the moniker of DC Podcast. Peter, it was so cool to have you join us and to suggest Edgar Ray in the first place. I found this just the watching his movies and going in discussion tremendously enjoyable.
1: Uh, it's a blast as always, guys. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's always great to have you, and we're looking forward to your um, uh, appearance on another uh, episode of the Directors Club in the near future
1: me too can't wait
0: and we hope to catch you guys who've uh, uh, been listening to us on another episode of the directors club thanks for listening
2: bye
1: Just another thought on Michael Sarah. If you were to start the uh, Michael Sarah Appreciation Society, you could call it SAS, C A S.
0: C A S. Yeah, that's that's right. That's one thing that he absolutely completely lacks in every single movie except There Is the End. Um, also, <laughs> that, by the that's, way, that's just, irony,
1: man. That's irony. <laughs> I see.
0: I um I have to mention. I saw um, Molly's Game, uh-huh. and there's a expert poker
2: player.
1: What? When
0: I saw what the expert poker player was.
1: Oh Oh, no Okay so that's another thing We can talk about then Because he's good In Molly's game
2: Oh oh, it's Oh. it's Sarah Yeah he, play, he had uh, to play an expert. Well, you know, give him some. He, he's playing. He has he, to play he, a manipulative if, if you, jerk. If you give someone some Sorkin dialogue, there's nothing they can't. Do.
1: Well, no. Well, we'll talk. We can talk about this later. But he's actually playing Tobey Maguire, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, well, true.
0: And by the way, yeah. he's at, uh, if you actually see the story of Tobey Maguire, because it's based on a real story, Molly's, mm-hmm. Gully's Game is. He did some awful, awful shit in that. Like he literally, he literally said, "I will give you." He literally went to the dealer and said, "I'm gonna give you this five thousand dollar chip if you if you get onto the table and bark like a dog."
2: Like, wait, he, are you talking about it in the movie or the real Toby Maguire? The real Toby Maguire <laughs> supposedly really did this. He's well, yeah, Toby he's
1: not, he's not identified in I don't think in the book no. or the movie. He's called like Player X right, or something. Right,
0: everybody quote unquote in the know on these because they were celebrities and sports stars. So yeah, no, it was Tobey. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I know. It makes you really want to see uh, the the uh, dark undercurrent of Spidey 3 again, don't it? <laughs> Kate Kaplan
2: would eat him alive. <laughs> <laughs>